This talk has been recorded at the Vanamali Gita Yogashram, Rishikesh, North India, situated on the banks of the holy river Ganga at the foothills of the Himalayas. This is the seventh talk in the series and is on the sixth chapter of the Srimad Bhagavad Gita. It is entitled Atma Samyam Yoga or the Yoga of meditation. Om Shri Krishnaya Paramatmane Namaha Om Shri Patrasaradhe Namaha Adash ಶಷ್ಟೋಧ್ಯಾಯಶ್ರಿಧಕ್ಕಿಧಿಪಾಂಡವ ನಹ್ಯಸ್ತನ್ಯಸ್ತಸಂಕಲ್ಪೋಗಿಭವಿಕರ್ಚನಾರುರುಕ್ಷೋರ್ಮುನೇರ್ಯೋಗಂಕರ
ಪಶ್ಯತಿ ಆತ್ಮೌಪಮ್ಯೋರ್ಜುನ ಸುಖಂ ವಾಯಿ ಪರಮೋ ಮದ ಅರ್ಜುನ ಯೋಗಸ್ವಯಾಪ್ರೋಕ್ತಾಸಾಮ್ಯೇನಾಮಧುಸೂದನಸ್ಯಾಹಂ ಅಸಂಶಯಂಹಾಹೋಮನೋದುರ್ನಿಗ್ರಹಂಚಲಂಭ್ಯಾಸೇನಾಶಕ್ಯೋವಾಪ್ತುಪಾಯಸ್ರ
ಇದು ಶ್ರೀಮದ್ಭಗವದ್ಗೀತಾಸು ಉಪನಿಷತ್ಸು ಬ್ರಹ್ಮವಿದ್ಯಾಂ ಯೋಗಶಾಸ್ತ್ರೆ ಶ್ರೀಕೃಷ್ಣಾರ್ಜುನ ಸಂವಾದೆ ಆತ್ಮಸಂಯಮಯೋಗೋ ನಾಮ ಷಷ್ಟೋಧ್ಯಾಯ ಗುರುರ್ಬ್ರಹ್ಮ ಗುರುರ್ವಿಷ್ಣು ಗುರುರ್ದೇವೋ ಮಹೇಶ್ವರ ಗುರು ಸಾಕ್ಷಾತ್ಪರಬ್ರಹ್ಮ ತಸ್ಮೈ ಶ್ರೀಗುರವೇ ನಮಃ i bow to that guru who is brahma vishnu and maheshwara as well as the transcendental supreme brahma the fifth chapter gives us the vision as to how high a man can soar but when we start practicing we may find that the senses are not as pliable as we presume they are like turbulent horses which drag the chariot of the mind this way and that way as they like and to control these horses is the whole process of the practice of yoga but it is a gradual movement we have to take one step at a time a house is built brick by brick the mason doesn't throw all the bricks together in a heap and produce a mansion the greatest care and precision should be taken while laying the foundation otherwise the whole edifice might crumble so the sixth chapter gives us the yoga of meditation by which the mind can be brought into control at the outset the teacher emphasizes his oft repeated assertion that sanyas is an inward and not an outward renunciation know that the sanyasi and the yogi are the same for no one can become a sanyasi without controlling the mind and such a man is also a yogi yoga is the step we take in the direction of impersonality the direction towards the highest person within us the seers of the upanishads tell us that the self or atman is in all things this self is not the psychophysical identity which we signify as ourselves but it is the divine spark existing in us as well as in all things the urge of the senses towards the object is itself the action of this atman the mind is under the mistaken impression that the objects will produce happiness but it is the satisfaction of the self that is a prime motivation in the possession of an object the object itself has no value it is because of the presence 
of the supreme self in objects, but love for them arises. If the self is not there, love is unthinkable. But because of some sort of illusion, we feel that it is these objects which produce satisfaction. The psychological reason for this illusion is because the possession of the object is followed by a cessation of desire. So for the time being, the mind subsides into itself. There are no agitating thought waves in the mind. It becomes, in ordinary parlance, self-possessed instead of devil-possessed, as it usually is. So for the time being, we feel a happiness that we have got what we want, which feeling lasts until the next thought wave arises, beckoning us to another object which we feel would add a little more to our happiness. The metaphysical reason for this craving has already been stated. The divine self is present in everything and everywhere and is constantly beckoning to us. But we mistakenly believe that it is the material objects which are pulling us. So our misunderstanding of what is pulling us is what makes us dissatisfied even when we get the so-called desired object. All of us have experienced this. As Bertrand Russell puts it, there are two tragedies in life. One, not to get the thing you desire, and the other, to get it. The second tragedy is inexplicable until we realize that it is the infinite self which is summoning the infinite self in us in every act of desire. And what we are unconsciously demanding in every act of desire is nothing short of this infinite. And so the tragedy of life, when we find that the object is far from giving us the infinity we unconsciously crave for. So it is the higher self which is the object of desire for the lower self in every act. And when the self which is lower tunes itself up to the higher, it is in a state of yoga. This self has various degrees of manifestation. We will know what is the next highest when we reach the stage that is immediately below. So long as we are responding to the call of the higher, we are on the path of yoga. In fact, this is the only way we can advance, step by step. There may or may not be double promotions, but for the normal student, the steps have to be taken, one by one. Nature reveals its secrets by degrees. He who thinks he knows it all has no idea of what he is talking about. Thus, in the sixth chapter, the Lord gives a rousing call to man that he himself is his own friend and his own enemy. He should upgrade himself 
by having recourse to his own higher self and should not degrade himself through his lower self. The higher self is the object of meditation of the lower. To the extent that the lower is in union with the higher, to that extent we are successful in our endeavors. To the extent we are selfish and ignorant of even the existence of the higher, we are bound to be failures. So the self seems to be a friend when it uplifts us and an enemy when we are not in tune with the purpose and motive of the higher self within us. He who has conquered his lower self exhibits that great equality which is stressed in the Gita in all levels of his personality, bodily, mentally, and intellectually. Bodily, he is impervious to heat and cold. Mentally, he is unperturbed in joy and sorrow. And intellectually, he is above honor and dishonor. Such a man who is established in his highest self, the Atman, is thus oblivious to the dualities which trouble his various lower personalities, physical, mental, and intellectual. This is the ascending order of self-control. We may find many who are in perfect control of their bodies, who can bear great tortures of the body, but who will crumble when their mental equilibrium is disturbed. A patriot who can easily bear tortures to his body gives in when he knows that the life of his child or wife is being threatened. This is a mental or emotional personality. Then, then another who may overcome the pull of these two levels yet breaks down when it is a question of his honor or his family honor. This is the intellectual personality sheet. These three are only our different personality sheets. The yogi is one who has surmounted these sheets and is established in the reality of himself, which is the Atman. To him, a lump of clay, a stone and a bar of gold have equal value. This should not be taken to mean that the yogi himself is a clod who cannot differentiate between objects. It only means that he does not place the same value on objects which the world places on them. The value of gold lies in its rarity. It has no intrinsic value of its own. If gold was as plentiful as rock, it would be quite valueless. So its value lies in the mind of the man who owns it. The yogi has found the rarest thing of all, the self within him, and therefore places no value in the baubles of the world. He does not differentiate between friend and foe, enemy and well-wisher, 
he does not even differentiate between saint and sinner. In the next few verses, Lord Krishna describes the steps of Dhyana Yoga or the Yoga of Meditation by which one attains such a state. The two wings of the aspiring yogi should be Vairagya and Abhyasa, that is detachment and practice. These are the negative and positive aspects of yoga. One has to clear the ground of weeds before planting. The amount of detachment or Vairagya has already been described, but without some sort of practice or Abhyasa, this detachment would be impossible. So, so the yogi who has been striving to achieve perfection should resort to dhyana or meditation as given in this chapter. When we read these verses, what will strike us is the extreme simplicity of the Lord's directions. So much has been said and written about meditation nowadays. So many volumes and methods that the practitioner is often quite confused. But the Lord's teachings are simplicity itself. The beginning of the instruction in verse 10 gives us a clue as to what meaning Krishna actually gives to meditation. Yogi yujjida sadadam atmanam the yogi should be in continuous union with the Atman or the higher self. So the meditation of the Gita is not a mere five or fifteen minute affair of sitting and closing the eyes, but a constant communion with the Divine. This is true meditation at its highest. And a yogi should be in meditation for 24 hours of the day, whether walking or talking, or writing or eating or sleeping. This is the consummation of the yoga of meditation. But to attain this, a few simple instructions are given. First of all, we should choose a lonely spot, for the mind is ever ready to be distracted and meditation in a marketplace for an aspirant is quite unthinkable. For the time being at least, he should have given up his desires, and to that extent he should be without possessions, or rather without possessiveness. Without this preliminary requisite, no one should practice meditation, because the mind of a man filled with desire, can never become single-pointed. So it would be a waste of time for him to sit down and try to meditate. This is the reason why we find so many meditators complaining that they can never meditate. The mind of the meditator is allowed, nay, has to be filled with one all-consuming desire and that is to achieve union with the Divine. If that desire is there, 
all other desires fall off. The next important thing is the place of meditation. It should be clean and sequestered, neither too high nor too low. There he should spread his seat. The classic seats for the meditator consists of a mat of kusha grass, which is a certain type of grass with medicinal properties, which keeps away ants, insects, etc. On top of this, he should spread a deer skin, which is a good insulator and prevents vibrations from being lost and also protects him from the effects of lightning, etc. Over this, he should spread a piece of cloth, since the deer skin might prick him if he sat on it without any covering. It may be objected that these instructions are applicable only to those who sit somewhere outside in the midst of nature, as the ancients were wont to do, and have no meaning to the modern aspirant who meditates on top of a multi-story building. This is undoubtedly true, and we should use our common sense in such matters. But one thing is important that we should always keep some particular cushion or mat or cloth or rug for the purpose of meditation and always use that and nothing else. Even inanimate objects have vibrations and this will ensure that there is no loss of positive vibrations gained through meditation. Sitting on this seat, he should maintain a steady posture, keeping the head, trunk and neck in a straight and steady line and directing the gaze inwardly towards the Atmya Chakra between the eyebrows. Observe that the Lord does not specify any particular asana or posture for meditation. The only insistence is that the body, trunk and neck have to be kept straight and immobile. Psychic energy runs upwards through the spine and a poor and twisted posture would prevent this and thus retard the process of meditation. The Asmya Chakra or the spot between the eyebrows is the seat of psychic wisdom, the resting place of the mind, and so the inward gaze is fixed on that would aid the mind to be controlled. While meditating, the mind should be kept calm and free from fear, and the vow of Brahmacharya or continence should be observed, not merely physically, as would be obvious, but also mentally. The whole action of the lower mind should be turned to the divine.
thus meditating regularly on him the supreme object of your love you will surely attain to him when we read these verses we might again misunderstand that yoga is only for him who has given up the world and run away to the forest to, to disabuse the mind of this notion the lord says in the very next verse this yoga is not for him who sleeps too much nor for one who doesn't sleep at all not for him who eats too much or for one who doesn't eat at all it is for one who's yukta in all these daily activities of life the word yukta has been normally translated as meaning moderation the yogi is one who's moderate in all his activities who is not given to excessive indulgence in any one thing of course it does mean this but the word yukta as used by lord krishna in many other contexts in the gita has another meaning it means to be united so here this meaning also has great significance the yogi is one who in all the daily activities of his life however insignificant is united with the divine this is the idea which is given at the beginning of the instruction that the yogi is united constantly with him and meditation should be a 24 hour affair there is no difficulty for the lover to think of his beloved in fact the difficulty would be not to think of her even when busy in the office or while playing a game or talking or laughing or even sleeping the thought of his sweetheart is always hovering at the back of the lover's mind so for the yogi who has fixed the entire outpouring of his heart on the divine beloved there is no difficulty in thinking of him constantly whatever mundane activity he might be engaged in established in this constant awareness of the beloved even the greatest sorrows of the world cannot shake him because of his exalted state this is truly the final separation of our mind from the state of sorrow the mind of man is ever a prey to sorrow it seeks happiness yet always finds sorrow so the lord gives this as an encouragement to the mind that in this state can be procured the final divorce from its constant companion sorrow therefore let the mind practice with resolution and undismayed by the many pitfalls which might accrue on the path such a man 
sees the self in all beings and all beings in the self. He sees all with equal vision. So I am always with him, says Krishna. He abides in me and I in him. We are ever united. In whatever way he lives and acts, know, O Arjuna, that he lives and acts in me. The love of the world is spiritualized and changed from a sense experience to a soul experience. And in this there is no danger or shortcoming. Fear exists only when there is duality. When we are established in unity, there is no room for fear. To see all as the divine is to hate nothing and fear no one. Such a yogi, says Krishna, I consider a supreme. To sum up, three things have been pointed out as most important to successful meditation. The first is one-pointedness of the mind. It should be fixed on the goal to which we are aspiring and not run after the things of the world. Next is disciplined living. There is no use practicing meditation for a few minutes daily and then living in a wanton fashion for the rest of the day. Life is a single unit and cannot be compartmentalized into sacred and secular activities. 24 hours of the day and 364 days of the year, we should exert great discipline on all our activities if we want to succeed in meditation. Thirdly, a friendly and balanced outlook to the whole of humanity is necessary. Without the feeling of equality and oneness with the rest of creation, there would always exist fear. And where there is fear in the heart, there would be no room for the Lord to be enshrined during, medi during meditation. Arjuna's next doubt is about the status of a yogi who, for some reason, is not able to achieve the goal of his yoga and attain union with the Supreme. Having given up the normal path of life and deprived of the goal of yoga, perhaps by death, perhaps by some other deterrent, will he not perish like a torn cloud? asks Arjuna. The Lord gives the most beautiful and consoling answer to this. O beloved Arjuna, he says, there is never a fall for one who has started on the path of this yoga with sincerity. Such a man can never meet with misfortune. After death, he may attain the world of the virtuous and then get reborn in the household of pious and spiritual-minded people. 
where he will get another opportunity to pick up the threads of his yoga which had broken off in a previous birth. Or he may even be born in a family of enlightened yogis. There he regains the knowledge of his previous birth and strives for, per for perfection. Due to the impressions of his previous life, he is drawn to a life of yoga. Thus he purifies himself through the efforts of many lives and reaches the supreme state. Whoever strives for self-perfection, even in the very least measure, cannot go to ruin. That is the beautiful side of the law of karma or the law of action and reaction. We are always afraid of the law of karma as it is a binding chain. But we forget that on the positive side also our efforts towards yoga will be given credit. Whether we succeed or not is immaterial. In fact, the Gita is not concerned with the outer success or failure. What the Gita applauds is the sincerity and honesty of purpose by which we have undertaken the work. For God values our sincerity and not the ultimate success which one may expect but should not expect. The memory of our previous lives may not be a conscious operation of the mind, but many of us feel an urge towards a particular end, and this propulsion is due to our previous practices and aspirations. So the person reborn in this manner is impelled to move in the direction of the same practice which was incomplete in his previous life. And everything that is necessary for the continuation of his practice will be provided for him by the very law of karma itself. When there is a sincere movement towards the reality, even though we may not have a proper conception of it, it shall work its own way in a miraculous manner. Whatever your conception of God, the sincerity that you exercise in your endeavor to attain him shall be your savior in your future life. Even in this life, you shall be taken care of, says Krishna. Neither here nor hereafter shall such a person suffer. Partha naivehana mutra At the end of the chapter, the Lord extols the state of the yogi, which is superior to that of all other states. For the yogi seeks for just one thing, 
that is union with God, whatever be the means, but even amongst the yogis, he who worships him devoutedly and becomes one with him is the best of all. This is the concluding idea of the Gita, which is taken up again in the next chapter. Hariyom Tad Sat Om Asadoma Sadgamaya Tamasoma Jyotirgamaya Mrityorma Mridamgamaya Om Shanti 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 From the unreal, lead me to the real. From darkness to light and from death to immortality. Hariyom. Mean